There's a strong stereotype in our culture that's exemplified by caricatures and animation, cartoons, and even comedic sketches. And this stereotype says that if you're strong, you're coordinated, you're capable, that you're probably stupid. And the opposite, that if you're smart, that you're probably uncoordinated, weak, and ungainly. Well, as my contribution to blur this line and break this stereotype, I want to do a series on scholar warriors and interview various people that are both smart and warriors and strong. Today, my first guest is Dr. Peter Lorsch. He's a professor at Vanderbilt University and the author of a book that I found amazing and highly educational after years of trying to search for something like this and not being able to find it. I found it about a year, year and a half ago. Chinese martial arts from antiquity to the 21st century. It spans the gamut from the beginning of Chinese civilization, the very first dynasty, all the way to modern day and how Chinese martial arts played a role in that. I think you will enjoy our conversation. And Dr. Lorge definitely is not weak. The man has been doing martial arts since he was a teenager. And now, every week he goes to war on the mats a few times a week doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and putting himself through the grind and the crucible. So I think you'll enjoy our conversation. We're going to talk a lot about Chinese martial arts history, some major pivotal figures in Chinese martial arts, and we'll probably riff on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the UFC for a bit too. So I'll break this up into multiple parts. Let's get started. All right, hello everyone. Uh, today I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lorge. He's a professor at Vanderbilt University and he's a lifelong martial artist. He's been, I believe, since your teens, right? Yeah. Is that accurate? Yep. Uh, kickboxing, Chinese wrestling, yep. Chinese boxing. Yeah, not really. A little bit. And lately, Brazilian jiu-jitsu for the past decade. Is that yeah. Okay. And uh, he's joined me today. He's the author of a book, Chinese Martial Arts from Antiquities to the 21st Century, which I invited him uh, to join us on this podcast to discuss some things out of his book and pick his brain because he's got a lot of stuff in there that uh, I'm cu very curious about. So, <laughs> And something no one should hear about. <laughs> so uh, welcome and thanks for joining us today. I read your book. I found it in 2018. I actually had given up on pursuing any history for Chinese martial arts because I had drained the well dry back in uh, 2011, maybe. And then I guess I stopped looking right when you came out with your book. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised when I found it because one thing that I having, I have a very eclectic background in Chinese boxing. I did a lot of different styles. Yeah. And one thing that I find uh, enjoyable about your book is you took this broad approach to Chinese martial arts history, whereas sometimes digging down into something can reveal a lot of treasures, but you miss the bigger picture. 
Mm. Uh, so I think I, that's one thing that I really enjoyed out of your book. Yeah, that was, I thought it was kind of the precursor. The, I mean, first of all, there was nothing really in English that I found that sort of gave a, an overview or that put it in Chinese history. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still a historian, so I need to put it into that history and make it part of it. Uh, the other thing is I'm a pre-modernist. So my goal was really to see how far back I could trace something. But that splits me off because most of the way we experience martial arts right now is a very late imperial. Uh, yes. So they, at best, last three, four hundred years. Right. And uh, my period is usually the 10th and 11th century. So th it's very late for me. <laughs> and... Um, most of what we now understand uh, is is coming out of a much later period. So mm. I didn't want to work on that because it was later and that wasn't when I worked. And I wanted to, so some one of the, and I think it was some of a justified complaint about the book was there's more detail, there's more stuff going on for what we want to know in recent times. And so someone said I should have sort of compressed everything up to, say, the Ming dynasty into, you know, a chapter or so, and then spent much more time on Ming and Qing and modern, which was partially, a, it's a valid criticism on one level, but on the other, my goal was to try to show that it existed and had a history, a longer yeah. history, before right. that. Well, and some of the stuff that I want to ask you about today is particularly important because it does go back further than the Ming dynasty, and we can trace uh, the breadcrumbs, if you will, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the, the breadcrumbs get fewer and fewer as you go I back. Know. No. It's, um, so uh, speaking of the breadcrumbs, one of the topics I wanted to talk to you about today is in Chinese martial arts, we have forms, uh, and please feel free to correct my Chinese, is it Daolu that they're called? Yeah. Tao, yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if it's Tao or Tao. I think I'm pretty sure it's. I think it's Taolu. Taolu. So yeah. Taolu kata in Japanese. Uh, the yeah. choreographed sets and sequences, and there's a ton of them now. Um, yeah. But in your book, I noticed that they go back quite a ways. Did you? Can you elaborate on that and well, it, talk it, about when they started, why, and the evolution of that? Well, as far as so, so you mentioned this to me when when you know you you emailed before, and I happened to actually be reading uh, uh, Mamingda's uh, what is it uh, Wu Shui, which is his he's this great you know major figure in in the Chinese martial arts community, and he's published a lot of research. He's also a martial artist, family long family tradition, mm. and and a Chinese traditional doctor. So oh, okay. He, he's like exactly that thing that you were thinking of, you know, like this guy who's like a doctor, a Chinese doctor and a martial artist and comes from a family of that. And he's also, um, I think he's Hui. So he's not Han Chinese. Okay. And his, I think it was his grandfather was involved in some of the compilation of these martial arts in the early 20th century. Okay. And he actually had a comment about Taolu, which was that, you know, this was modern. Mm -hmm. that, and that he actually complains in this book that the institutional creation of these martial arts 
ended up being way too rigid. Yes. Too systematized. Yeah. So a lot of what we're looking at now is probably 20th century. Mm-hmm. And as for, you know, evidence of forms, that's hard to, you know, I mean, we all know as martial artists, we have that difference between the sort of, uh, what in Taekwondo, they used to have the one-step sparge, you know, you, uh, right, you throw right. a punch, boom, you know, and then you had like, I think there was something like 27 of them, if I recall my, you know. It's been a long time since I did Taekwondo. I can't remember either. But, you know, we had like, you know, we had basic form and we had, you know, eight, in my school, they had eight Palge and eight Teguk. And then we had like 27 one-step sparrings. And then we had all, you know, and then you had, and, and to the extent that the forms are a combination of one-step sparrings, more or less. You know, you have to ask yourself, what, were they doing anything like what we would see as forms now? Well, I thought you mentioned early in one of the early dynasties that they were using them as uh, troop calisthenics and a way of intimidating the opponents on the battlefield as like a martial dance. Is that? Um, so then we have, so then you, so there are, I think the earliest things that we'd sort of associate with that. And, and again, this is back to what do you actually have recorded? Mm. There were recreations. Uh, there were sort of a abstract recreations of battles that had happened in the past that okay. they were form at court with weapons. But so they, they would at court as part of the ordinary ceremonies, they would perform a recreation of the decisive battle that had, you know, gotten them into power. This was the, I think it was Joe Dynasty. This. Uh, and then you have mass training, you know, everyone stand in a line, hold a spear, you know, that sort of stuff. And then you, as you progress, you get to these questions. Uh, I know in the Sung, they have a, there is a manual we have that says, okay, at the sound of the first drum, these troops do this. Then you sound the drum again and they do this other thing. You know, they stand up, they sit down, they you know, point the spears, uh, they open up their formation. The like drill and ceremony, what we, what yeah. we did in the army, yeah. Yeah. Well, and this becomes training for actual... I mean, when you think about modern... Modern warfare is very different in the sense that you don't develop firepower in the same way or mm-hmm. fighting power, it would more appropriately. In pre-modern times before gunpowder weapons, you developed fighting power of a group by getting as many guys on the field as you could. Right. Once you start getting chemically powered weapons and all kinds of other things, suddenly having all those guys on the field isn't such a good idea. In one spot, yeah. In one spot. You know, so, and then you're actually trying to train everyone, okay, don't bunch up, you know, spread out. Uh, but in, in, mm-hmm. in pre-modern combat, you have to say, okay, everyone, stand there with your spear out. And then in this formation, when the other guy comes charging at you, realize that if you all stay together, you're safer than right. if you away or even if you personally go out and try to kill someone right like the spartans yeah as well and, and a lot of other military yeah i mean strategies mass and training veteran troops who know that you know we're relatively safe if we stay together but that that takes a lot of training well and this this wasn't a question that i i had written down because this this all just uh came to me while you were telling me this the 
there's an aspect of military training, even though today the purposes in the U.S. military wouldn't find any value in that type of uh, training for combat, it's still heavily used for drill and ceremony going back to even George Washington trying to whip civilians into shape to be able to fight and be a coordinated army. Now, is there any evidence that the, the Chinese would have used that in that regard as well? Or is it? I... Yeah, I don't know if they broke it down. I mean, I think, you know, we, we're used to these pedagogical methods where we break everything down into their finer forms. And, you know, this aspect of teaching does this and that aspect of teaching. Oh, yeah. Okay. That would have been the way they would have. You know, they, I think they understood that, well, okay, you're going to run a war. If you're going to run the army, this is what you do. And did yeah. they get down into, well, this part causes unit cohesion and this part causes – I don't see that. Um, you know, personally, I also don't agree with that too much from an educational point of view because that's what has done so much damage to a lot of education on, on one level. I, I, there's a lot of value to it, but when you start breaking down – and examining your teaching methods on some, you say, well, wh why did we do it this way? Yeah. And I believe it on one level, but on the other level, as you begin to try to articulate it, you find out that there's a lot of stuff going on that you can't articulate. And hmm. you, 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 I mean, think about the charisma of the instructor. I mean, you run a school. Absolutely. And it's huge. It's huge. And yet we don't really talk about that in terms of, well, why did you go to that school? Well, I stuck with that school because I like that teacher. Or yeah, um, I could learn from that teacher because they're you know because when you go to get coached, you need to have someone who you'll listen to. Right. Now, what caused you to choose to cover the entire breadth of breadth of Chinese martial arts versus versus focusing on just say the Song Dynasty or the Han Dynasty? Well, I, you know, I, I take the uh, the bold position that on one level I was trying to create a field. Or oh, well, that's yeah, um, that's and valid. I was faced. I've been in academia long enough to have some sort of self awareness about how fields work and how they don't work. And to be honest, I don't think we really have a field yet. We have we can have publication. And fields lag publication, oddly. Um, partly that's because to have a field, you have to have people hired. Uh, and there's really almost no one who you could say they were hired to teach martial arts history. Or, or they were, we hired a Chinese historian and they're, they're doing this cool research on Chinese martial arts history. You don't. I don't think there's anyone like that. So you know? you're, you chose to focus to try to, on this broader perspective, to try to develop a field rather yeah. than get yeah. narrowed down. Well, okay. let, let's say if I had produced a book on martial arts during, during the Song Dynasty, yeah. assuming I could have even gotten it published, and that's a big question mark, um, who is going to read that? Who's yeah. going to pretty much? Whereas, and I should say, when I proposed the martial arts history that I did write, the Chinese martial arts history, 
they couldn't find, so Cambridge requires three anonymous readers to evaluate the, the proposal. Huh. And they couldn't find three. Wow. So they found two. Um, and again, this, this, it's academia. So what you're looking for is you need a person, ideally a senior person from a great university. And, you know, it's, it's, this is, it's a feudal system, right? It's all about status. And you want, ideally you want, you know, three guys from the top universities to evaluate that and say, yes, this will be useful. This book will be good. And then they approve it. Well, they looked at it. So there's no, there were no senior people about, there's no one in academia who had written anything. So then they're trying to get people. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, what about Douglas Weil? Because he had written a lot of Tai Chi stuff. The translation. Uh, you know, he was translating, and he was in literature. Oh. Okay. Now I don't know. Now, to be honest with you, they found two people. They eventually. I'm trying to remember how we found a third. It was you know because I'm not supposed to know who anybody is. Right. One person who they got objected because, you know, the whole point of the book was that there's a history. It's not just this, uh, our, it's not just our modern concept of martial arts. Right. And the right. person was really offended by that. Wow. And they were like, no, but what about the art? And, yeah. and so you also, so there's also, a, there's, a, there's huge sociological issues that come into this where, you have someone reading it who, let's say, they have a very specific notion about what martial arts is, and I presume if that person had an idea of it as this enlightened thing, and it was about nonviolence, and it wasn't about war, and then I, they're reading this thing where I'm saying the whole point of this stuff is, it, you know, is, is military practice. Right, right. And, no, I like that very much, because I like how each chapter you break down well, this is what they were doing with archery and this is what they were doing with hand-to-hand -hand combat. And this is what they were doing with chariots. And, yeah. uh, uh, but if that's not what you expect, that's not what you want. Well, people have a perception or yeah. a preconceived notion or what their belief structure is that they were brought up in, in the martial arts. And yeah. they, they stick to, it. I deal with it day in and day out. I mean, I run a YouTube channel on, uh, creating application videos for Mantis boxing and people yeah. that have been doing Mantis boxing longer than I've been alive are just, that's not Mantis. That's, uh, you know, they, they are just ingrained. That this is what it is and that's all it is. And there's no open-mindedness, but that's a broader sociological issue anyway, I would think. Yeah. But so, so there literally was, they couldn't get three people or even, or they, we just barely got three people who could even vaguely be said to have some qualification to yeah. examine the proposal. So then, once you do that, once there is a book, then you can do, you know, the narrower focused things. Okay. Because when someone says, well, you know, no one, there's no field in it. Now, of course, I also want to point out to you, it wasn't that there weren't Chinese books that covered this stuff. Okay. It was just nothing in English. So, and I said in my proposal, you know, there's this Chinese book and that Chinese. These are respectable martial arts scholars, you know, uh, uh, Lin Boyuan, people like that. And, and But right. that doesn't exist in the English language world. So that doesn't exist in, in Anglo-American or Western <laughs> the academy. Yeah. It doesn't matter. 
So having done that, now it becomes possible to say there is something. It came out of Cambridge University Press, so that's a respectable press. It's, uh, you know, to the extent that I'm a standard academic, you know, okay, so it's, it's a legitimate historical study. It's, it's not making, you know, crazy claims. Now you can start doing more detailed things. So that was kind of my hope. And then what happened was very soon after that came out, and I had no awareness of much of, you know, there was Stan Henning, who I'd been in touch with, yeah. and Stan did, and I, still, I haven't been able to get back in touch with him. I, I lost his, his email address went down. I, but he taught me a lot. I got a lot out of his stuff. He was doing this great stuff. You know, Douglas Weil had done, you know, some translations, and and then suddenly uh, Paul Bowman and all of this martial arts study stuff yeah. shows on my radar. Like I said, you know, I, I think we were all kind of operating independently of each other. Yeah. And, you know, and then you turn around, whoa, there's all these people. Oh, that's great. So, well, that's, I mean, I found your book and then I found the martial arts studies and then I found the papers and it just yeah. it opened up. It's like, oh, this is, all this stuff is here now that wasn't here 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and so that's just, so it's just fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's really helpful for, for unlocking the, the history or the truth or weeding through the, the mysticism or the esoteric nonsense and yeah well so a more specific question i had for you today uh is something that does come up with mantis boxing as well in your book you mention repeatedly uh the 18 martial arts styles or it's 18 it's like the 18 weapons it's sort of like it's this weird term because I think I showed that it changes like what's yes. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about is so this changes as you, and you make a note of it in a few different dynasties. Well, yeah. now this is redefined as this. Yeah. And what struck me with that, I mean, I was going to ask if you could elaborate on that and define them. And then also what's, what stands out as I read it is Mantis as a, an oral history and there's there's a lot that is to be desired with some of it. But one thing that is consistently brought up in the different lines is it was a hybrid of 18 different martial arts. Oh, yeah. Which is, is silly. But then when I saw your book and I saw that, well, uh, most of those 18 are weapons. And yeah. Mantis has a ton of weapons, uh, uh, forms that came down with those traditions. So... It, it, I, could you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, I think it was, I'm trying to remember now. I haven't, you know, that, that's the, uh, the other aspect of writing books is that, uh, yeah, I know you write something. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can find one here. Um, I got it. Oh, okay. The 18 martial arts in the Ming. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that it changed in the Ming by one account. It was bow, crossbow, spear, sword, long sword, mouse spear, shield, fu axe, u axe, g halberd. Whip, metal tablet, truncheon, shoe spear, fork, claw head, silk corded lasso, and then unarmed striking is last. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think it, it, it just becomes this, 
shorthand for, you know, it's kind of like our, we have this ideal that we can go in any weapon, you know, not just that you know, I mean, most of us would be like, oh, it's a knife. Uh, <laughs> that, that is a screwdriver, that is a knife, that's a wrench. Right. You know, but but um, that somehow you'd be a master of combat and that any, any weapon you'd be, yeah. you'd master. And that's, that's a, it's an interesting concept because what does mastery really mean? And I just did a podcast on that last week. <laughs> but we're all, we're all, you know, uh, troubled by that as a, as an issue because, you know, you can be really good at one thing and win every single fight and not actually be good at any of the other things that might've been possible. I mean, we see this in the UFC all the time, right? I, I yeah. I, I always wonder, looking at the UFC, why there isn't much more emphasis on um, leg techniques. Because it always seems like you, someone gets knocked down, the other guy's coming in, and why he doesn't just go up into for a heel hook or something. You know, I know. And, I know. And it just seems like the obvious thing to do, because he's standing right there, your legs are inside his legs, You because know, he's coming in because he's thinking he wants to go into mount. Well, I mean, as a an insight that, and this might not be the answer, but from what I've seen, like in the jujitsu schools that I train in, if they're following the IBJJF rules, yeah. you're not even allowed to do an ankle lock until blue belt. Yeah. So, and then you're not allowed to do heel hooks until you're black belt. So, and this is one of my, this is a personal pet peeve I have with that modality or that method is that, from my own perspective, I used to tell black belts that I would roll with, please do ankle locks on me. Yeah. Please do knee bars, even though they weren't supposed to, because I don't want to wait, you know, five, six years before yeah. I ever know what it feels like to get caught in an ankle lock or a knee bar or defend against that. And if these guys that did do jujitsu training in any school that follows that rule set, then they would be limited on any of those attacks until later on. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm fortunate in my school. I mean, you have some very good students uh, I got to roll with. That was a lot of fun. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, Thank you. That's awesome. We have the school I'm in now. You know, I came in before all this crisis started, and I was on the mat at one point. We had seven black belts on the mat. Wow. We had, you know, we, me and a couple of the other brown belts, the two of the other, and we were like cowering, saying, you know, we're like the only – because it was like – they had just thrown a bunch of people. So there's all these black belts. And then suddenly there was all these purple belts. And we were like, we're like, you know, there's not a lot of brown belts around. And right. <laughs> but, but for a number of reasons, the culture shifted at a certain point and people started doing those techniques more. Suddenly everyone's doing those techniques. Mm. So you're not, the availability of people you're going to have to fight who are going to be trying that suddenly just increased. Not because someone made a, dis a conscious decision, but because a bunch of people, somebody started doing it. And then, yeah. A bunch of, yeah. And, I mean, and if you, if you talk to the guy that they, they credited with spider guard, he tells you, no, I didn't invent it. Yeah. There were three people that came up with the same idea around the same time from different schools. Yeah. And it just, it stuck. It became a thing. Yeah. And so the good thing is because the school, I mean, there's a lot of people who compete so you know you you know I'm not saying there's not some school where we win every time you know we're one of these giant schools but you know you get a guy and he comes like oh well, he just won 
gold in the world in you know his thing. So you know when you're rolling with this guy that he's you know he's trying to be up to the international standard. You know he's 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 looking for so I'm a free rider. I get to roll with these people who are really serious. Yeah. You know, you and, and not. Yeah. But but I, I tell you, I'm honestly actually worried. I, I have hit lead techniques on you know blue belts or higher belts than that that I have to let go because I don't want to find out that they don't understand how dangerous the situation is. Uh, yeah. And that, that's the concern. I, look, I, I had, there was someone I was rolling with at one point. They didn't, they didn't understand the, uh, the arm bar they were in. They were lower belt. And, and, but because I think when I was a lower belt, I would have been much more, I would have wanted them much more. I wanted. I would have wanted that tap much more than I wanted their safety. Mm. Uh, and when you get higher, you go. Their safety is more. Important yeah. Than, yeah. But that's an ego issue, not a you know. So it's like it is. So you know, and you know, you got some guy who's going to come out and say, "Oh man, I I rolled with the belt and he didn't hit anything on me." And you know, someone who's watching might be like, "No, dude, he you know." He was letting you do stuff. He was, you know, he 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 had a position. He let, yeah. But um, all right. Well, so back to what you were saying about the weapons. So about specializing yeah. versus, or uh, if you know how to use a, I think the point you were trying to make is, you, if you know how to use a pole arm, then yeah, a staff and a spear are going to be very similar to each other. Oh gosh, that's a huge argument. In uh, okay. That whether staff and spear are the same, there's a huge Ming Dynasty fight about that. And you know, one there's one argument says they're the same, and the other says no, 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 they're completely different. You know. Um, well, my next question was: Can you explain to everyone the significance of uh, who General Chi Ji Guang was and why? Or the significance he plays in the history of Chinese martial arts. Okay, and and I'm happy to do that one. I also happy to push. I just read a wonderful dissertation by uh, Israel Kanner on okay. Chi Guang's unarmed combat section, the Chuanjing, the Fist Classic, which yep. comes out 1560 edition. And I mentioned you said you saw the martial arts studies reader. Um, and there's a whole issue that I bring up. Oh, maybe it's not there. I did an article on Chi Ji Guang's martial arts um, in a volume on uh, Chi Ji Guang, mm -hmm. and he removes that chapter in yes. a new edition. And what uh, Israel Kanner argues is that even he removed that. It went out of the military training in that sense, mm -hmm. but it became the beginning of a discourse of a literature that discussed unarmed fighting. Interesting. So 1560 or 50, yeah, the 1560, uh, Chuanjing, that chapter. And that becomes, starts its own intellectual tradition of discussion of unarmed combat. Okay. Uh, it, it's, so there's a lot more complicated history here about that, but Chi Chi Guang is our first military manual that has actual techniques in it. So, uh, I'm translating very slowly, uh, 10th century manual on wrestling, but yeah. just 
It doesn't make sense. Which, and I've seen the drawings from his uh, book, and yeah. a lot of those are uh, moves that exist in current or modern uh, Chinese boxing systems, one being uh, Tai Chi or Tai yeah. Chi Twin uh, in particular. A lot of those moves carried over. Yeah. Um, but in your book, you mention that his survey, he did a survey of the local martial arts in Yantai, and he complains. I found this amusing because um, <laughs> it uh, it carried forward hundreds of years later to the modern day. The still argument is he's complaining about flowery boxing yeah. styles that don't have any substance. They don't work. They're just uh, dance. Well, he also complains the difference, and, and I don't. I tried not to use the term style when I, I know it because he says. Okay. This martial art, and they have part of it, and this martial art has part of it, and none of these things have, nobody has the complete system. And, um, you know, that that gets back to a little bit like this, this mythology that we get, or this notion that someone's going to tell you, look, study this martial art and it all everything. And, yeah. you know, that seems to be always a question, and that's what mixed martial arts brought up a very interesting challenge to what we would call sort of traditional martial arts in the sense that a lot of traditional martial arts, as and I mentioned before, Ma Ming Da had complained, they got very rigid. And they said, this is what this art is. And if it's not this, if it's not in this curriculum, it's not that. It's something else. Just funny because even when I started in my first uh, Kung Fu school, even though it's not a good term, um, the the manual that we got this was in the 90s so you yeah. got your paper photocopied manual yeah. was the the basically the four pillars of Chinese martial arts the yeah. striking the kicking the locking the throwing yeah. like well that's mixed martial arts that's yeah so it, the concept I mean would you would you say that Xi Guang was maybe the grandfather of MMA in China <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, my assumption is that when, you know, so one of the reasons why it's useful to separate military from non-military martial arts, if, if there is that, is that the military guys have a very narrow set of possibilities and needs. You know, they don't need you to be able to fight with six different weapons. They need no. you to fight with one or maybe two. Um... They need you to fight in, let's say, armor. They don't need you to, you know, and they're, they're, they're not, you know, as they say in the modern uh, military, you know, if you're engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, you did something wrong, you know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Something's really, right. If you know, let alone, I mean, if you're fighting with a knife, you've done something wrong. If you're fighting, if you're unarmed combat in a real opponent, something, you know, yeah. is, is really, something really went sideways uh, to not use profanity. Um, and... We so, had, uh, we called it foobar when I was yeah. in the army. <laughs> progression from what is it? You know, snafu was it snafu foobar? Yeah, snafu. I think snafu was first. First, and then it was I can't remember. Then tarfu foobar or the other way around. But yeah. Um, but but you know, so if you're actually doing that, something went wrong. And then the issue with Chi Chi Guang is what was the you know he he makes this argument 
that the function of hand-to-hand combat is not, it's not useful in, in, in a war. He actually yeah. says that. And, but he says it's about you know, training you to move your hands and feet, and it's, it's and, and, you know, so we're always faced with that question. What exactly is the function of some of this stuff? Whereas we in the modern world, even in America, we can say, even in Tennessee, um, unarmed combat, if you're going to end up in a fight, is probably far more likely than armed combat. Yes. Um, uh. And so from that sense, it's, it's very pragmatic. And then we get down to the, well, okay, do you know how to fight on the ground? And uh, it was always clear to me when I, when I started martial arts that what happens on the ground. So. Yeah. I used to uh, run self-defense workshops, and it, it was like the first question that anyone would ask. Yeah. What happens if we get up on the ground? Yeah. And, and yeah, you take someone who knows how to good stand-up, and they get on the ground, and they're just, you know, you can't, you know, all that footwork goes away, all of the... And, and um, what's that one guy who does that show, uh, Hard to Hurt, and he talks about how, uh, was it, you know, you're not a ground fighter. And, uh, and he said, you know, self-defense is probably like, what is he? It's like jab, punch, and sprawl, you know, and you don't want to be on the ground. Um, that was and, Chuck Liddell's strategy. I mean, yeah. he was a wrestler, I think collegiate wrestler, yeah. but he never went to the ground if he could help it. Yeah. Um, well, but of course, it was the threat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, and so that's the, you're more willing to do certain things if you're not worried about falling into something where you, you know, got a problem. Uh, and I realized that uh, I was doing some MMA stuff when I was first doing jujitsu at the school because they have it. And I realized that if I did any stand up, I would not go to the ground. I wouldn't work on the jujitsu. Yeah. Because I had, you know, 25 years of striking of stand up. And, and some throwing, but not, no ground fighting before that. So the only way to get me to really do the groundwork, the jujitsu, was to not, is to remove that whole first part. Uh, now, maybe from a self-defense point of view, that's not good. Well, I, I would add, as from a coaching perspective over the years, what I've noticed, because I teach two modalities, I teach the Mantis boxing and I teach the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and even though I have students that do both, yeah. they have this, there's a barrier in the brain and it, it's really the way there's a great um, book. I think the brain that changes itself. Uh, no, that's not the one. There's another one on um, how our brain functions and works. And if you don't connect the neurons for the stand up in the ground and work on that phase in between, it's like two different worlds in your brain. It's like, well, that's this over here. And I compartmentalize that because it makes yeah. me able to learn. But then when somebody puts me in this environment, I'm completely shut down. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, I was noticing because um, I was uh, practicing banjo and uh, that my, I will really like, per, you know, doo -doo 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 -doo. and then the, I'll have a pause as my eyes then go down to the next, uh, uh, you know, staff, or, you know, the next level. And that's not in the music. There's not this pause. It doesn't break in those places. Or, you know, my brain sees the musical notation and breaks it at, because there's a line there, right? Right. And so I go, da-da-da, da-da-da-da. <laughs> and, and, and so how do you, 
you know, how do you get to that one, two, drop, do a double leg, you know, move into, that's yeah. incredibly hard to do because each of those skills is so hard to do well. And then the transition is even harder. And so when you, just to see somebody do one, two, drop, double leg, move, you know, slide in across, go to mountain, you know, take, and to do that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's a threat. I mean, you got to put it together and it is hard because each of them are, you could get very high level. I mean, if you look at uh, each of those components is a specialty in different martial arts. Yeah. Wrestling is a specialty. Boxing is a specialty. Kickboxing is a specialty or Taekwondo if you want to yeah. focus really heavily on the kicking. Um, judo, another one. And then you got the ground. So, yeah. And, and all yeah, and, and, and so it, it's, you know, is anyone a master of all the, you could have someone who's, you know, so then we always have these comparisons in, in mixed martial arts of someone, they are good at this or good at that, or this person's the most complete. And that being complete is itself uh, a, almost like a separate skill. Yeah, I actually enjoyed the UFC more. I don't really watch it anymore. I actually enjoyed it more. And I started watching the women's division yeah. a few years ago because it was like watching the old UFC yeah. where people came in with specialties. Yeah. So you pit the specialty versus the specialty, and it was far more interesting to watch than the vanilla. Yeah. Everybody's got a little striking, a little kicking, a little ground, a little wrestling, a little nutrition, a little, you know, <laughs> a little yeah. of everything where it's not as you don't find as many of the wow oh look at that like remember carl parisian yeah you would see him pull off a judo throw in the middle of a cage match you'd be like what yeah what's that um it just didn't happen but you yeah miss out on that so so chiji guang not the grandfather of mma <laughs> i don't yeah i mean because if you look at it he's not doing any everything standing yeah, that's true. Well, if you yes, if you include the ground as part of that, I could see that. Well, you know, as a guy, you can't. You know, wait, you guys aren't on the ground. You know. Yeah. So yesterday we were talking yeah. about uh, General Chi Ji Guang. Can you? Yeah. Do we know anything about him? Is is it his yeah, so personal really, life or anything else? So he's really interesting. We actually turns out we actually know rather a lot about him. Hmm. And um, last year, year before, it was last year, I uh, was reading an, another person's dissertation, new scholar, uh, Baron, Baron Van Nordum. Very interesting dissertation on uh, Chi Ji Guang and a lot of his circle. And so Chi Ji Guang was connected. Well, it wasn't, I think it was also about, you know, this is my brain is all confused because I, I slotted it into too many. He was mostly, he was also talking about Wang Yang Ming, who was a, uh, Late, I guess you would call it a neo-Confucian. Uh, I, I don't use that term technically anymore yeah. for a lot of reasons that if you really want to go to sleep early, I can give you. But uh, so there are two major neo-Confucian thinkers in the last thousand years. One is a guy named uh, Zhu Xi, who is okay. uh, 12th century. And he's very scholastic in what he does. And he's usually the guy people talk about. But Wang Yangming, who's another 16th century figure, 
is actually much more important for the last 500 years or so, you know, for okay. 400, you know, change years. Uh, Wang Yangming, who is this great, you know, he's a, he's a government official. He's a Confucian thinker. He also leads, uh, oversees a campaign to suppress uh, a, a rebellion by minorities in which they basically commit genocide. Uh, he's also part of a very interesting circle because, so Wang Yangming is actually involved in military activity and he's part of a circle of people connected to Qi Jiguang's part of these groups and they are not exclusively scholars. They're not a, exclusively okay. what we call Ru or literati. Okay. Classicists. And they're all about, if you're moral, you should act. Like okay. morality will cause you to act. If you're not acting, you you know you can't just be you can't just sit there and read a book and and be moral. Right. You, if you know, and so there's a very interesting connection between Qi Jiguang and these Confucians, these Neo Confucians, these these what I would say Ruists, and uh, a lot of other people. So there, there's something very interesting happening in that time. So we do know about stuff. In English, like I said, there's this one book on Qi Ji Guang that came out recently um, that I had a piece in. I think Ken Swope had a couple of pieces in, and uh, it's very good. We do know a lot about him. He's a very significant figure. But what I haven't seen in English, and to be honest with you, I haven't looked in Chinese, although it's got to be there, uh, there's nothing, there isn't a really good biography of him. Mm. So if we know a lot about him, why, um, I guess my question would be, what, how did he become this pivotal figure in, out of everyone else that we can now use as a, I, I find, maybe you don't, I know this period isn't your favorite, but yeah. The Ming and the Qing are very interesting to me because of the root of all the stuff that I've done for 21 years. But um, what I found particularly fascinating with your book uh, was I had read about him in Douglas Wilde's works years before. But for some reason, I don't know if it was the way the book was formatted or if I was more interested in some other aspects. I even have highlighted notes about him in that. Yeah. But when I read your book, for some reason, it stuck in my craw um, because of the significance of the survey he did in Yantai, which yeah. for us, like Mantis Boxing comes from Shandong province and yeah. Yantai was the hotbed of it, the birthplace, yeah. really. And here he is in Yantai in 1560, writing down these are the styles and yeah. styles of martial arts or Chinese boxing that people are working on and nowhere in there is there mention of Eagle Claw or Praying Mantis or Tiger Claw yeah. or White Crane or any of these things that showed up later in the late, yeah. late, late Qing dynasty. You know, uh, in, in the best of all possible worlds where you either have a lot of graduate students around who are funded and can get them jobs so it's okay to have them around and they're interested in this, Look, this stuff could be sorted out. Uh, yeah. Uh, if it hasn't, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm supposed to be in China next year for for a year. Uh, I'll probably have more chance to wander into bookstores and and look around. Mm. 
the I looked up. So we have a digital. They have digitized the local histories. Yeah, you yes. And we have Vanderbilt has a, access to a good number of them. We our, our library is infinitely better over the last twenty years. It, it's fantastic how much better it is. And so I got in and I you know I've been poking around. The problem is, so you can go look at this stuff. And I was trying to track down. You know what are the can we can we find some of these people that show up in Chi Chi Guang's manual? And I didn't look at I didn't look up those. I was looking for some other things. You know, you can run these searches now. You might not find them mm. because they didn't, and that would be interesting too. But of course, you know, we're always arguing from lack of evidence is always a, a problem. It's a big no no in history. You know, uh, you, you you can't. Someone says, to, and we get this as historians all the time. There's someone's like particularly like martial arts people are much more, they have a lot more at stake in the martial arts history than they mm -hmm. have any of the other things I've written. So people get really pissed off at me because they're like, well, you can't tell me that, you know, Zhang San Feng didn't live in the Song dynasty. And I could say, yeah. well, no, and he, there is no, I have run the searches, the digital searches. He shows up in no texts, you know, that name doesn't show up in Song dynasty texts. It doesn't, it's like, yeah, so he could have been there. So you can't prove to me he did. It's like that is true, you know. Right. Right. You know, so I you can't I, prove that Santa Claus didn't. didn't yeah, Santa Claus didn't right. show up either, and you know a lot of things didn't show up. A lot of things that to me are a lot more important didn't show up. <laughs> like, you know, I have fragmentary evidence on gunpowder, and I've got you know all the documents on that, and they're just not that many. Right. Um, but when so, you have yeah. somebody like Chi Ji Guang that. Yeah writes down yeah. what is what is there at the time yeah i mean that's a pretty good indication and again not a hundred percent but it's a pretty good indication well if he's listing a survey of all these things that people are doing in the martial arts world and nowhere do you see this 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 yeah. and the one that stood out to me that i thought was really interesting was monkey boxing yeah that monkey boxing did show up uh so it's still yeah. alive today in some fragmented form, but, and who yeah. knows if it's anything similar to what it was then, but that was very interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like, Oh, I've taken them down. Oh no, no, they're over there. I have, um, now that I'm in my office, so it's uh, my, the office side of it. So, um, this is, um, his training manual. Here's the earlier and the later one. Oh, nice. So, um, this is Jisha Shinshu. You know, and uh, so, you know, we have these texts and actually, you know, there was another book he wrote in between the two editions. Okay. Uh, which some of which has been translated in uh, uh, last couple of years. Someone translated parts of it in the Journal of the Chinese Military History Society. Okay. Uh well, I'm trying to think where I, where, what that, when that was. I, you know, again, I, I too much stuff passes yeah. in front of me. So yeah, there's. So the problem that I have, I, I mean, I, like I said, someone could really do a lot of work on him. He's actually, it turns out, a very important figure. Now the question is whether he's an important figure, historiographically. Yeah. Uh, and of course, he was important. He he helped put down the pirate campaigns. Uh, he was active on the northern border against the Mongols in between. He's he's become for me a much more pivotal figure because of what he wrote down. 
uh, yes. because his the text he writes in between, which name escapes me at the moment, uh, and I don't want to stop this video while I like browse through texts. Yeah, that's okay. And I wrote about this. Uh, he actually talks about how our only advantage over the Mongols is guns. Interesting. Yeah, and so a lot of some of my my, my guess at the moment, and and this is just circumstantial from the very limited number of documents that I've happened to run into is that the difference between the 1560 Jisha Xinchu and the 1584 Jisha Xinchu is he gets more guns in his hands and the availability, not, not that the technology was new. They had the technology before that. That's not the issue. It's they get more guns in their hands. And then suddenly in the first manual, he's, he's being sent down to clear up a mess. Right. So he's like, uh, let's forget about the hereditary military families because they haven't been maintained and they don't know what they're doing. Let's recruit new guys. To recruit new guys, we have to train them a different way. Or maybe he's thinking, see, this is, and this is what's really critical in this. Why mm -hmm. someone, why we need a better study of this is, is he going in there and saying, okay, we need to change the way we're doing things because we have these new non-military people coming in and then he does that for a while. And after a while he goes, yeah, you know, that didn't really work. Discard that stuff and move on, maybe. Or did he say, well, you know, this worked up to this point. Things have changed. The reason why I was doing that was I had to make do with what I had. Right. Now right. we have guns. You know, let's face it, that stuff doesn't really help us on the battlefield. Or maybe now I've got more professional soldiers. I don't need to develop this aggressive sense. I don't know. Uh, something changed. And what's fascinating about him is that you have an early version, a later version. You have a text in between. We know about this guy. We know his circle of people. He's written about there's texts. Uh, so I'll probably end up, because of the connection both to gunpowder and martial arts, I've been drawn more and more into reading on him. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, Baron Van Nordum goes further on some of that stuff. Um, I don't know when his, he defended the dissertation, what was it, uh, like I said, two years ago? A year? I can't, I, I had to, you know, go uh, be at his defense, which was awesome, really important <clears throat> in Leiden, and they do it in this 15th century building, in this room, and nice. it's, it's really, it's really cool, you know, but he did this wonderful dissertation and so he's done that now like i said uh, uh i mentioned this other guy israel counter the the other day yeah. yep who's done this so so there are these new scholars coming in who are working on some of these things and related to some of these things it's really interesting uh i you know support them as much as i can mm. which is you know very little given the reason you know i just don't have the thing so there he's really important and right. but he was an important general. So maybe because he was an important general, those writings about unarmed combat had more they carried over more. If he were no one, it wouldn't mm. have mattered. You know, uh it, every time you get some general who tries to capitalize on I was a winning general, so now I'm gonna write a book. And then yeah, some of them, you know, it's like uh what's that that, that book American Sniper? And, yep. you know, what's interesting about that is I was sent that book 
And, but I was like, oh gosh, it's another one of these because the year before there was a book on a Navy SEAL sniper in the same time period, in the same stuff, uh, this yeah. guy Wazden or something like that. And so I had read that and I was like, oh shoot, another sniper book. Yeah. And uh, it's funny and because there's the one that, that really kicked them all off is the one yeah. that uh, is about Carlos Hathcock. Yeah. Right? I remember, we're, I remember reading that. Sniper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he had what, like 93 confirmed kills in Vietnam and was it the, yeah. the white feather? Well, he, he used to have the the longest kill shot in yeah. history it was twenty five hundred meters or something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So so, but why did the one guys? Why did Chris Kyle's book become you know sort of a get made into a movie and become all that get a lot of attention? Mm -hmm. But this other guy's book, who was the year before, which was essentially the same thing, and also you know our special forces guys, and and why didn't? And I'm sure that guy's sitting there going. You know, why didn't yeah, like it might have just been the story, like because Chris Kyle ended up being killed by, um, yeah, someone he was trying to help. So yeah. it might have just been it was more yeah. dramatic for Hollywood. Yeah, and so, but but for um, why was Chi Chi Guang so important? Well, you know, yes, he was an important guy. Importantly, he wrote, and that's critical. You know, the the I, I always said to students, you know, his, history is written by the historians. And, you know, if you don't write stuff down, it, it doesn't get written. You know, no one can read it. So an offshoot of this, because yeah. you were mentioning Confucius a minute ago. Yeah. And when I first started uh, talking to you about a problem I was having in my research with tracing back the Mantis boxing lineage. Yeah. Um, with this connection to the plum blossom boxing and this other stuff. Yeah. And you, you had reference, uh, sent me in the direction. Uh, I forget the direction you sent me at this point, but, um, you helped kind of throw a breadcrumb, yeah. try this. Well, when we were at the conference in LA last year, I was yeah. able to sit down with Tom green, who actually co-wrote that paper, um, with Guodong on the plum blossom boxing. And, and he, he wasn't able to answer the question, but I was able to sit with him and Jared and uh, Ben Judkins and have this, uh, like pose the questions that I had. Yeah. And it was interesting because in that discussion about the Plum Blossom stuff, it came up with the founder of Mantis Boxing yeah. That his whole origin story is an exact replica of Confucius. Oh. So um, can you comment on that as far as what uh, role like Confucius played in people po possibly ripping off his origin story? Like what significance oh my goodness. Yeah. that have? Well, so this, this is where you run into this problem of, uh, you know, what, the, 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 one of the greatest sins you can make in in history is to read things transparently which is to say you know the text says you know the moon is made out of green cheese so you go well the text says that so that it must be you right. know or be true um you know it says i i grew up here and i did this and so that's what you know and so what uh let, let me give you the other a similar example which is um the biography of swinza yep. in the records of the grand historian in the shuji 
And anybody who's a credible scholar knows that that biography is nonsense. It's, okay. it's a complete, it's a technical term for it, which I, I forget at the moment, which is it's basically, it's a, a mirror image. It's not even a mirror. It's, it's just a copy of this other famous journal, Woods' Shoes. Okay. So then you have this kind of, uh, this mythical figure that, or, or a figure in the, in the case of Kong, a master Kong, he was almost certainly a historical figure who is mythologized. Right. Uh, like in the case right. of Master Swin, it seems uh, there, there might have been some guy, Master Swin, but but the image we have of him is is entirely mythology. Is mythology. Okay. Uh, and so what you have is a, a trope, right? You have a what kind of guy this was. Well, here's our ideal kind of person like that. And obviously this person must be the ideal person kind because they're our ideal. Right. Uh, you know, so you always have, uh, you know, your martial arts teacher is always this guy who was a great fighter, but, you know, he didn't want to fight, but then he learned this thing and then he get, you know. Right. You right. know, we, we see the movies, they're always like that, right? You know, yep. we're kind of. Only so many origin stories yeah. and they all copy each other. Yeah. And so I would just assume that that, <laughs> you know, you tend to fit people, people get fit into types. And yep. this is a pretty well-known thing. Uh, you know, again, if you. The, the interesting thing, if we go back to the Shurji, the, the records of a grand historian, is that Sima Qian has a couple of levels of, of these idealization, these ideal biographies. First of all, he's choosing exemplars. Yep. So he doesn't choose the people. So he has categories of biography. You know, here are the, the Ru, the, the Confucians. Here are the military, the militarists, the Bingjia, the the and that's that term jia again which why you don't translate it as style because it's you know who's in the bingja well swinza woodza and swinbin mm -hmm. you know and so you look at that and you say okay so these are the ideal types and then here are the ideal scholars okay so first of all you first you choose who you're going to talk about because you have an idea of who the guys are, and then you fit their stories in so like I'm not going to be chosen as an ideal scholar because I'm not an ideal scholar, right? I, 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 I didn't do this. I did do that. Mm. Um, so if you're going to say, so that's why when you, you look at these martial arts origins, well, yeah, you get a mythologized form and it's, you can deal with it. That's the point. You know, that's why we, we, we learn myth, historical methodology. There's a certain amount that you can learn. And there's a lot you can't, you know. So my answer to that would be, you know, probably once you start, once you start getting a mythologized version, then you might be able to track back and see, is there something earlier? Okay. But huh. sometimes you won't you won't get that, right? Because right. and and then the and then you get a huge amount of resistance from people who for some reason have an investment in that mythologized figure. Oh, he's preaching to the choir on that yeah. one. Yeah. You know, so this is back to me, you know, the the, the, the Taiji people who got really pissed off at Stan Henning years ago for sort of saying, you know, this is mythologized stuff and that doesn't, you know, it doesn't. And, yeah. Ah. And, you know, uh, I'm not a, you know, I make this, I, I put the, the ideas of Shaolin in a historical context. And, you know, there are people like, oh, he doesn't even believe Shahar on this. And I'm like, well, you know, 
read Shahar. Shahar is an excellent scholar. He did a lot of good work, but you can see the separation where he's like, okay, here's the historical record. Mm -hmm. You know, here's what it means. And then he, there's the points where he's kind of, he's a little more credulous than I'm comfortable with. Okay. Because it's, it's back to that speculation, right? Right. So, you know, it's very clear to me that if you look at the records that Shaolin was an important place in the Ming dynasty mm -hmm. for martial arts. It was not an important place in the Qing dynasty for martial arts. It was not an important place in the Sung dynasty. It was not an important place in the Tang dynasty, you know, for martial arts. Right. People went there. That, see, that's the thing. That, back to that, what can you argue from lack of records is you have people who are going to Shaolin and they're talking about, yeah, we're hanging out with the monks doing Buddhism. And, uh, right. you know, well, that was, and, and I, I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah. um, I found that part of, of your book, uh, yeah. very educational and enlightening was the part about Shaolin and yeah. that this idealization we have of the monk, yeah. the fighting monk and how you kind of, um, disperse that idea or, yeah dissolve that idea where it's like, no, these guys were hired thugs that shaved their head and wore robes and they looked like monks, but they were drinking and boozing and womenizing yeah. and doing all this stuff because they were really bandits. And yeah. that was very, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, and that, but that's what pisses people off. Right. Because <laughs> this goes back to, um, I, I gave a talk many years ago in, all state or something like that for Ken Swope. He had his class on um, uh, the origins of, of Kung Fu. And, and, and basically I was, I was using Kung Fu Panda where, you know, he goes, uh, uh, the, that weird thing of master Shifu. It's like, so it's like master, master. Yeah, I know. Master or master <laughs> father. Or... <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's like, you know, yeah. So, so, but he, they go back to the origin of martial arts. The origin of Kung Fu is a place the pool of tears or something like that, sacred pool of tears or something like that, where a guy, Uwe, you know, this turtle named turtle, um, he created, you know, Kung Fu at that time, at that place by this person. Oh, and it's like Bodhidharma. Yeah. And, yeah, and, it's, invinci and it's invincible. And the, the, the issue is if you could get the, the further you get from him, the less strong it is. The closer back to him and that oh. origin you get, the more powerful it is. Interesting. And if you could get back to that original origin, that unitary origin, <clears throat> that pure thing, you would be invincible. And mm. if you will, that's a lot of the origin of the traditional martial arts, uh, the ideology of the traditional martial arts, which yeah. is... There is this founder. This founder was invincible. Uh, you could say he he broke from the past or whatever. But this founder, he realized a truth. Yeah. Or in the case of Wing Chun, Yong Chun, you'll get this. She, uh, which of course, and that's Stan Henning had a whole thing about how about the myths of that, but I don't think he ever published it. Which was, you know, Stan found some Ming military officer who had ended up back. And, and created Yong Chun in probably in Yong Chun. And it was a simplified version of the stuff he studied. But mm -hmm. 
if you could get back to that origin, the, the founder is invincible. And then it's just a question of how close are you to the founder and his perfect system. Yeah. And any deviation from that, you know, or if you say, well, I, I only know, you know, you've been doing this, right, where you're combining uh, uh, Tanglong with BJJ. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, well, what, you can't do that. Well, because because that's implicitly, you're saying that there's a, a lacuna in our fighting system. That's no good. Right. And, you know, I, I, I had this discussion with... Um, Sensei Ando runs a YouTube channel and yeah, I, and I watched I your video podcast. with him. Oh, good. Nice. Yesterday, after we talked, I was like, oh. <laughs> um, where people, it's kind of like you're practicing a dead man's art. Yeah. And insisting that that's the truth, that's the reality. And it locks you in this box where you're now tied to that and you're no yeah. longer innovating. And we, it's funny because when we're alive, people criticize the actions that are later idealized and yeah. it's like, Oh, this person, they broke the mold and they did this and it was unheard of and they blended these things and they're awesome and amazing. Wait, you're doing the same thing. Oh, you're horrible. You're, you're yeah. trash. You're, you shouldn't be doing that. What do you, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about. It's such a hypocritical mindset. Well, but, but you have to, it's the, it's, I, I try to think about it in terms of humility and arrogance, which is if you do it, you're so arrogant as to presume to change things. If you succeed, <laughs> then you, you know, and then, and then you succeed and then someone says, oh, well, that person was innovative and because they succeeded. They obviously, yeah. they were, you know, it's the end result. Uh, you right. know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing Chinese military history and I'm not, you know, I always say to people that uh, no one ever declared me brilliant for good reason. I'm not. I, I'm just proceeding along an obvious path. The same with me. I'm not, yeah. It's like I'm not I'm not trying to do anything and be be some pivotal figure. I'm just yeah. filling this hole. It's like we don't have anything in Chinese boxing that can handle the ground fighting. Yeah. So it's an obvious hole and a very big one. Yeah. As you know, being a jujitsu practitioner, you end up yeah. on the ground with somebody and they, they've got six months of high school wrestling. You're done. Okay. Yeah, you're done. Oh, no, no. You're wrestlers, the wrestlers, just it just sucks, particularly some young wrestler. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to have an answer and a solution for that. And that's yeah. all, you know, it's just like you said, following an obvious path. And But but, but then, you know, you're you're an idiot until you're brilliant. Yeah. There, there doesn't seem to be a so there doesn't seem to be a, a a middle ground like Picasso or yeah well yeah and when you Copernicus or Galileo yeah and then and then you're pivotal and even if well, you're not trying to be you know so so as an academic I write things that are for the most part read by a very small number of people yeah and if I'm lucky it if it positive has a positive effect on a fairly small number of people. And, and, and I'm fine with that. I'm not. Looking yeah, at that. that is fine. That's, I mean, yeah. it's move things by one but, small pebble, right? That's yeah. how you move them up. And so if someone contacts me and says, Oh, you know, I, you know, would you do this? You know, I, I, I read this thing and it was really helpful. Oh, that's great. So that I helped that person intellectually. And, and of course, as a Chinese historian, you really, you feel the tradition 
in ways that I never felt it in the West when I was doing Western history because it's an unbroken historical tradition. Mm. So you 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 read all these guys and then you're reading their documents and right. then you're writing your thing in English using their documents and critiquing their documents in a very similar way that they critique the previous people. So you yep. just feel like the least good at Chinese person in this tradition. <laughs> and you say something and then the the really the most positive thing I felt in in from a personal point of view was I was in uh, Anhui for a conference. They they invited me to come out to China and to speak on Chinese martial arts history. That's a big honor. Yeah. Well, and so I got out there and I and I gave my talk and it, I don't even remember what I was talking about at the time. And then afterward, they put us. It was very funny because it's big chairs that we set on stage in this. Yeah. But a, a Chinese graduate student, you know, stands up and he said, "Look, you know, I read your book, and you know, could you add some of these questions for me?" And another student said, "Yeah, I, I tried to get your book and I couldn't get it, you know, but you know." And and I thought, isn't it a wonderful world, where again, as as the least good at Chinese person in this tradition. Right. <laughs> That somebody who's Chinese who's thinking about this too is not going to discount what I have to say. And it's going to, yeah, now, yeah, now they, they may be the most enlightened or, or open minded people around, those two guys I ran to. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, they, they went and, and, and you say, okay, I'm part of this larger discussion. Right rather than I'm off in the West over here and they're doing that. And, and I'm, I very, I very much appreciated that because you always have this feeling when you, when you're dealing with somebody else's culture that they look at you and they say, well, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a obvious racial or even cultural thing. What could you possibly know about my culture? So that was very, you know, and to realize that at the end of the day, you're just trying to fit into the culture, not, you're trying to fit into this lineage, not stand outside of it. Right. But if you do something really that seems obvious to you at the time, which is tremendously significant later, like say perhaps Chi Ji Guang's, I, yeah. don't, I don't think Chi Ji Guang was trying to innovate. No. Um, I mean, he had a practical reason for doing it. It just yeah. became such a pivotal thing as far as our, our Chinese martial arts history. history. Yeah. And so in later times, you know, you hope that you did something positive and useful and correct. That's always a terrifying one when you're writing, you know, you, you write all this stuff out and then you, uh, you know, it's sitting in this room at this desk writing yeah. all these things. And, and then you kind of go out occasionally and say to people, you hold up something and say, is this okay? And some people go, eh. and hopefully someone at some later point just says, oh, you know, actually this was real. And, you know, yes, in some egotistical way you keep hoping that you're going to say something and then it's going to stimulate a whole lot of people to be able to study that, to be able to work off that. I would, I, I don't argue with your use of the word egotistical there, but as, as human beings, we are also altruistic in a no. uh, societal structure or the tribe. Like yeah. we want to be, we want to contribute something. We want to be of import. So yeah. I know, I know what you mean egotistically, but it's also, I think a level of altruism. It's like, I want to do something that's significant that other people 
uh, value, not because I get some uh, endorphin rush or like, yeah, look what I did, but because it's, it's, I did something of value. I did something yeah. important to somebody else. And yeah, yeah. I mean, but you have to remember that academics are very egotistical. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I, are I, martial I, artists. <laughs> well, no, but let me, let me, let me clarify what I mean by that. And, you know, yeah, martial artists is, you know, you, you, you hope to go into it and find out that you're just an amazing talent and you'll be better than everyone else. And after a while, you know, most of us, find that that's not the case but the difference between say teaching and book writing is that you know i teach a bunch of students have i succeeded is it good you know i don't really know yeah i, I don't have a concrete thing and let's say i'm a fantastic teacher and all these students are positively affected by that i probably don't know but also once I'm done teaching and those people, you know, maybe, there could be someone sitting there saying, oh, I really, that was a great class or I learned something. But when you write a book, it's this concrete thing with your name on it yeah, that you're fitting it into this lineage. Mm -hmm. And we're very obsessed with lineage and we're very obsessed with lineages of, of knowledge. And so someone in the future is going to say, you know, you're, you're there, you existed. Right. Whereas you can teach all you want. And again, we're back to the same thing with Chi Ji Guang. Nobody writes it down. Uh, this guy was a great teacher I had in some place that is recordable, that is findable. Then right. it's ephemeral. And yeah, it, it's like it didn't happen. Yeah. Whereas, you know, uh, the Shi Ji, the, the record, you know, uh, um, Sima Qian writes this letter that we have in which he talks about because he was you know castrated um and he still and he decided instead of taking instead of committing suicide he accepted castration so he could finish this history wow and he writes a letter that's dedicated to, yeah and i tell students you know i'm not dedicated like that uh, <laughs> neither am i <laughs> no okay yeah um, but, i'll take it to the grave <laughs> yeah, yeah. but he writes a letter that we have in which he explains his decision to write to uh, uh, suffer the worst humiliation mm. in order that he could create this work, which would, he hoped, be recognized by future, by some future extraordinary person, Chiren, who would appreciate him. And what was the work that he wrote? Uh, the Records of the Grand Historian or the... Okay. Uh, and it's... What year it, was that? Sorry? What year was that? Oh, what is it? Uh, second century BC. Uh, oh, oh, it's it's. It, okay. I realized it. It's yeah. It's uh, something like that. I'm gonna. It's gonna be terrible. I'm gonna find it. Oh shoot. Uh, it's. Um, there's you think a, of it later. Let me know, and I can add it as a, a yeah. sub subtext. Yeah. He screwed up. This is what he. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, it's again. It's one of those texts that I'm always referring to, and then I write it down and I double checked it when I'm writing, and then I yeah. forget when I'm speaking. And but it's one of the most significant historical texts, probably the most historical. I mean, you're going to argue with another sinologist about that. The most important historical text, certainly the most important imperial Chinese historical text, mm -hmm. uh, and he becomes very famous. And in fact, he succeeds beyond his wildest imagination because his his history becomes the core historical work, which becomes the model for everyone. And his writing style becomes. 
but that's your ego for you. And now you're just trying to fit into those traditions. But we're acutely aware of the fact that, you know, most of the people I read in classical Chinese, in literary Chinese, are other historians. Yeah. So I'm just very conscious of being part of that lineage. And I can break down for you my intellectual lineage even here, you know, my teacher and where his teacher right. was and how that and and so we're and it's very similar to martial arts. It's it's, you know, where did you get that from where and and but the difference is we write it down. Yeah. You can attribute, you can you can understand that. So, you know. Um so I, I actually I want to get to this hotbed question. Okay. Can we offend uh, someone? What's that? Can we offend someone? Yes, I'm sure it will. Um, so let me read let me read an excerpt from your book. Uh, oh, okay. You do it's that. It's actually huh? a footnote. That's important. Uh, Wang Jiangnang, did I say that right? Uh, sounds like yeah. Oh, you're you're going to go to the the uh, internal versus external question. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to pick this scab. Uh, it's a pretty big one for people. Yeah. Um. So, did I say his name right? Jung I Nan? think so. Wang Jiangnang. Yeah. Wang Jiangnang was a master of two skills, one of pugilism and the other archery. From ancient times, great archers have been many, but when it comes to pugilism, truly Master Wang was the foremost. The external school of pugilism reached its highest development with Shaolin. Zhang Songfeng, having mastered Shaolin, reversed its principles, and this is called the internal school of martial arts. Acquiring yeah. even a smattering of this art is sufficient to overcome Shaolin. Um, so that, that was very, uh, interesting to me when I read it and I have, um, I have some thoughts on it, but okay. I wanted to get your, uh, your take on it. Okay. You wrote it. So, <laughs> well, I was yeah. quoting, well, this, is, this, <laughs> this is this guy's biography of, of Wang Zhongnan. Yeah. Right. And, uh, so what. This is the first time that we see a mention of internal martial arts. Is that correct? That I'm aware of. Um, and what year was this? Do you remember? You'd, you'd have to look that. I, I'd have to pull uh, it. Wang Zhengnang, 1617 to 1669. Yeah, so, so 17th. So we're talking whatever. So 17th century. Um, I mean, my guess would be, and of course, this is a highly politically inflected comment about him and mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with relationships of foreigners versus Chinese. I mean, this is back to that question of reading things transparently. So if we read it transparently, we say, okay, what is said in the biography of Wang Zhongnan is true. Well, I, uh, um, who wrote it? Okay, well, the people writing it had an agenda. Did they invent this? Probably not as a concept, mm -hmm. but at the moment, until somebody does some more research, that's our, that's our locus classicus for the moment. That's, that's our first mention. There's a huge industry of people who want to connect, uh, you know, Qigong and all this internal stuff with martial arts. And I can't prove that didn't happen. 
but I also can't find any records that actually connect Dao Yin. Uh, you know, Qigong is a, what, 19, the term is like, what, 1934 or something like that. Or Oh, actually, okay. What, yeah, it's very late. Fairly, but but, fairly. It, but again, it's, is it a new term for an old thing? And, uh, yeah, well, there's Dao Yin, which is an old practice and which is very similar, so maybe it is. I, uh, the, the terminological issues. I thought there was some, this is going back to yeah. something I read even maybe 20 years ago. I thought there were, there was a record of the, that some of the Qigong movements, not necessarily yeah. that name at the Shaolin temple that dated back like they, there's yeah. written in the wall or there were. Oh yeah. I don't. Well, or something. Yeah. I mean, the problem we have with all this is, so you see an image. Mm -hmm. And it looks from the past and it looks like something you recognize from the present. You know, are they the same? Yeah. Right. And so then you're into this problem of like, what's, we don't have a necessarily historical solution to that. Mm -hmm. And then you run into this problem of arguing with people where they say, see, it goes back however many centuries. Right. And to which I say, you know, I, I can't, prove it so from my point of view it remains an open question it remains unproven right does it matter to your practice you know yeah and people want for some reason they want that historical connection it, it's uh, validation people yeah. want validation they will do that's a base human uh psychological yeah need well yeah how do we legitimize these practices we do? You know, look, I hopefully will never be in a real fight. So any martial arts techniques I have that might have some application in a fight, I never find out whether yeah. this script I've been given, uh, it's a very interesting concept that Martha McCoey talks about, which is that this script that you're given about, if a fight happens, this is what's gonna happen. So right. here we have this prescription for what you do. And so I, hopefully I never find out that the, what I was told was untrue. Right. Uh, and so, but unfortunately I go into you and I say, okay, uh, you're going to teach me this stuff. And does it have a, a self-defense application? You say uh, yes, or we're not, we don't stress that or whatever, but yes. Okay. Well, why do I believe you? Oh, well, uh, you know, and so that's why you have yeah. the guys who, the guys who are trying to make a business who go and compete in jujitsu and some guy says, and you know, I won this tournament. I won the, the worlds in this. You say, okay. Right. You know, do, that means you're good in that context. Well, exactly. I mean, who showed up that day? I mean, yeah. I, um, that's a very small pool of people. Yeah. Was the shape of your opponent? You know, were they yeah. tired? Were they jet lagged? Were they yeah. sick? You know, were they at the top of their game? Yeah. Did you won, and that's awesome. But there's a lot of factors into winning, yeah. and there's two, two yeah. sides of it. But I, many years ago, when I was teaching, I came to the conclusion because I I came into schools that did both what are classified now as internal styles versus external. Yeah. And it would drive me crazy because I would go to the classes 
for what's classified as internal, like Xing Yi. I was studying Xing Yi Chuan and Taiji Chuan, and the uh, and they did Bagua as well. Which I think that that classification of those only came out of um, the Jin Wu. Um, it, it's because yeah, Xing Yi wasn't tied to that prior to. But it's yeah. So there's the seven big styles. Mm-hmm. And it's like Xingyi, Bagua, Taiji, Yongchun. It might be, you know, Meihua or something like that. I can't remember all of the, there, there's a, a set and that's all a late imperial early, you know, or, or late imperial Republican period right. population, which again, I'm sure someone's written about, I'd like to find something on how that was, how that was done. And that's part of, but that's also, by the way, very much like this internal style thing that was also a nationalistic issue right exactly you know and so there's this notion that they're trying to say that china is a unified culture and And battle the the poor image they had to the rest of the world yeah well but also against the different provinces you know the the one of the things that you run into is um how does a chinese person feel about the China as a whole, or are they in their local area? Yeah. And th- this is true in Europe. This is true in America, all, all these things, right? So it's, it, this is not unique. And so what you do is you create this thing that spans all of it. So, you know, like, like I'm not a baseball fan, but okay, mm-hmm. baseball, you know, it's, just, it's everywhere in America, right? right. So then you, you take this thing and you don't say, well, you know, these different lineages of Mars, they had nothing to do with each other. They were just, this guy, local guy taught this, that local guy taught that. Yeah. And so, but the government says, okay, no, we're unified. These all have roots. They have lineages. They connect us all rather than separate us. And now we're going to create a curriculum and we're going to train people in the TU Dashwe in the, you know, the phys ed university so that you can learn this curriculum and then go teach it to students as a, as a gym teacher. And, you know, get a job back to the economic aspect and you get a job, rate the students, you know, evaluate them and put them into a national system. They could compete. Yeah. They could. And then, of course, they tried to create an international system, you know, Wushu as, yeah. a, as an international. And then they wanted to make it Olympic. Right. And so then then we tie everyone to this unified system, you know, and then when you start saying, yeah, it's not really the way it worked. Right. Wait, 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 wait. You, you can't talk about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and But it would, it would always baffle me because the excuse with, say, Tai Chi or yeah. any of the internal stuff that you would hear is, well, oh, you do external styles. So you just – you start backwards. We start yeah. with the soft stuff. And after a while, we, we gain power. And yeah. it's like this is fantasy. This yeah. is it's like what what planet do you do you reside on that you think that you're going to do this soft slow movement in the air yeah and never hit anything never put a pair of gloves on never spar but you're all all of a sudden 20 years later going to be this amazing fighter that can just throw people without yeah. touching them and these concepts would I mean personally it would just it would um I would get frustrated by these conversations that I would hear people having and they would defend their arts with this. But what I realized after uh, years of coaching 
had this concept where I looked at a boxer yeah. and because I taught Tai Chi for 13 years and I taught um, boxing and then I got into teaching jujitsu. What I noticed common theme amongst all is no one comes in coordinated and able to just do the moves very rarely. Yeah, yeah, Occasionally you get somebody who's an athlete or something in it or yeah. a dancer and they, it doesn't mean they're doing it right. It just means that they, those people can make the motion, but yeah. no one starts out with balance, coordination, timing, strength, yeah. power, fluidity. And this, when I was reading this, I'll get, actually get back yeah. to your book in a second. What I noticed was, okay, you take a boxer, somebody wants to do boxing. They come in and they put gloves on and they start hitting the bag. It's very rigid. It's very stiff. They're fight, their body's fighting itself more than yeah. the bag. And only through tens of thousands of repetitions do they start to relax and internalize yeah. that movement. And they can now throw a punch with power because the entire body is connected to it because there's no resistance from muscle to muscle. It's now yeah. there, there's now this fluidity. So that is one concept with the internal versus external. But when I, read this excerpt from your book and the other stuff surrounding it that you, you added your, um, your take on it and yeah. your history of it. That statement specifically reminded me of a friend of mine went to, I think it was Hoist Gracie or Hoyler. He went to the, one of their workshops and my apologies for not getting saying who it was accurately, but the, uh, they said to me that they were telling a story when they got their black belt and that they immediately thought, Oh, this is amazing. And right followed right after that was right now I have to learn everything from the other side. Yeah. Meaning, okay, now I learned the technique. Now I have to be able to take them apart or yeah. uncoil them. Right. And so when, when I read your excerpt, especially that Zhang Sengfeng, having mastered Shaolin, reversed its principles, and this is called the internal school. It's like this is a really high-level fighter mm. that mastered the the basics, got to that, use a, yeah. a belt as a term, got to that black belt level, and then learned how to take everything apart from the other end. Yeah, I mean, so there, there's all that, and then there's the other... I mean, so I, I was aware of the fact that, you know, the, 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 the problem that faces you now is not the problem that will face you in the future. Yeah. And it may not have been the problem. So, so what, and, and this is also why I, I, you know, when you see people who are taking, uh, you know, hormone replacement or things like that to, you know, cause okay, I'm getting older. And, uh, and I think, yeah, you know, on one level, I appreciate that because it's, it's hard enough if you're a, a stable target to figure out what to do now. The problem is, like, as I'm trying to figure out how to do these things, I'm aging. Right. And so in the same way that a younger person can put all the time and energy into training. You know, when I was doing Taekwondo when I was, you know, 20. Right. I could go four to six days a week. And, I, you know, I, I just can't train at those levels now. No. I just, but even and, then, if you were doing jujitsu then. Yeah. Because I I've trained I train with twenty year old they get injured yeah. too yeah 
And, but you know, but just in terms of energy and and yes, yes, recovery. And yep. so, you know, if you think about the story of the O Sensei who creates Aikido, and that he goes through that the Aikido he creates, and this goes back to our authenticity or our origins question again. Here's this guy whose practice changed over his very long life. Right. And he had these students who lived with him for years. So, you know, you go and you study with him, let's say early in his life. And, you know, you studied with him. You personally, you lived in his house. You were with him for years. You learned this art. You go, you leave him and you start a school and you say, this is authentic. Right. After you leave, this other guy comes in. He stays with him for the same, but the, his art has changed. Yes. And suddenly that, and that guy comes out and says, no, no this is, I'm authentic. And so I said, well, they're different. Right. And they stress different things. And then you're like, well, which one's authentic? Well, you know, so is the authentic one. And of course, and then with the really troubling one as, as when you're studying it yourself is, is it the last thing I did or the latest thing, the best one? Right. Or did I go off in the wrong direction? Uh, you know, do, do, do you get to go full circle, come back, evaluate everything you did, say, actually, it turns out that the part three quarters of the way through or the part, you know, that was the that was the best one. Um, and but also you're a different person. Well, that and there's nothing more demoralizing as a teacher. Um, like I had this happen to me where I had a guy I taught in 2005. Yeah. And he was just absolutely loved it. Yeah. And it was, this is the best thing I've ever yeah. done. And he was in his 40s, yeah, the early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. And he had to move away for work. And he didn't study for me that long, maybe a yeah. year. He moves away and he comes back Yeah. Uh, seven, eight years later. Well, what I was teaching was completely different. Yeah. And he comes back all gung-ho yeah like i can't wait to train with you again i've missed this so much and he comes back and he's like uh i don't like this <laughs> i mean the amount of work you put in yeah, to try yeah. to make things better and improve and continually evolve and then yeah. you have somebody say yeah i don't like that <laughs> you know it, you know, we, we, I look at the stuff that I did when I was teaching, you know, academically, there were teaching techniques that I used and some of them I dropped because I thought for twice as much effort, I can get a marginal improvement maybe. And, you know, or if I do this thing, maybe one student will get a lot more out of it if I do that thing. And the other students will be annoyed or they won't get anything out of it, but it takes me a lot more effort. And it's like, screw that. You know, I'm going to, my emphasis is going to be on something else. And yeah, and you, you find out that, you know, and this student did really well with where you were at that time. And at that point, you just sort of throw your hands up in despair. Yeah. Because once you realize the constants of change, <laughs> um, it becomes very hard to, 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 to feel confident about anything, which is why we get back to as a historian, the text, because you can sit there and say, okay, here's the text. Here's what I'm saying about it. Here's what other people have said about it. Here's what I'm saying about it. Hand it on to the next person. Right. And if, and you try to be as honest as possible. And I don't just mean truthful. I mean, honest. Mm. And if you, and you hope that if you're being honest, 
someone in the future will say, you know, they made a good, they, they contributed something. I don't agree with it, but they're okay. As opposed to, uh, man, that guy was an idiot. You yeah. know, what, what kind, and, and of course in graduate school, you learn to be, graduate students are the most critical, harsh, because that's the first thing you learn is don't just accept everything, attack everything you've been, you know. Right. And then what happens, and then sometimes they look at you and say, well, why don't you do that? Say, well, you know, because I wrote a book and I found that it's really hard to write a book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I have sympathy for, you know, okay, there were some typos. You know, I'm not going to get upset about someone for typos or that the date on that thing wasn't perfect. As long as it didn't affect the main argument, as long as the person clearly knew what they were doing, if they make a couple of, you know, minor errors here, I'm not going to worry about that. And even if they their major point is wrong, but it was well argued and it was based on real information, and maybe I, that's right. fine. This uh, lives on in 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 a form on uh, on YouTube now because yeah. I never leave comments on people's videos that yeah. say anything derogatory or critical. And it's, it's like, I run a channel and put out a ton of content and I would I know what it's yeah. like to, to wake up and see just some jackass make some ridiculous statement. And like, yeah, it's great. This is what I start my day out with. So yeah, you, you kind yeah. of, once you put stuff out yourself and yeah. usually that's a measure I'll use personally is if somebody does leave a comment that criticizes something I do. I, I looked, do they have a name? Do they have a picture? And do they have any content at all on their channel? And if they don't, then why bother responding? Because you have no idea yeah. yourself what it's like putting work out. If somebody took does have stuff and they took the time to leave a criticism, great. Is it valid? And if it's valid, then admit it. If it's not, then move on. I mean, yeah. it's just interesting because YouTube is this newer thing, but it yeah. kind of the same thing yeah, happens. It's, it's all the same thing. It's like the first time I was working on, I, I was working on De La Hiva and, yep. uh, and I was looking up videos and they were like, Oh, and here's an interview with, um, you know, De La Hiva. Wait, he's alive. And of course he's alive. You know, he's not even that old, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, and then you have some dream that like, you'll come up with some move that will be named after you. Yeah, yeah that you be named after you. And <laughs> like, oh, that's that's that. And, and then, but can you imagine if you came up with two moves? Yeah. And then they'd have to be like, oh, well, what? what or or a whole guard that then. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, a and, bunch and, of other techniques and yeah, yeah. And then you have to ask the question: Is De La Hiva the best guy at De La Hiva? <laughs> You know, maybe he isn't right. Uh, um, even even if it were well, I'll tell you, and yeah. I know this isn't what we're talking about, but I got to tell you this: yeah. my BJJ teacher studied with De La Riva, and yeah. um, and then uh, so all the way up to Brown Belt, yeah. And he, and De La Riva and uh, Ricardo Laborio were both under Carlson Gracie, and yeah. they were they were school brothers. They yeah. like Laborio was at De La Riva's school a lot teaching. Well, uh, Dedeco went and studied with Laborio. Yeah. And that's where he got his black belt. But uh, last last year, it might have been 2018, um, I went to my first uh, workshop with Ricardo Laborio and De La Riva in the same summer. 
yeah. the deco had them up. And uh, it was hilarious because the first workshop with Laborio was, <laughs> okay, this is how you take apart and disassemble the De La Riva guard. <laughs> <laughs> and a month later, De La Riva comes in and just starts showing these things that he's still he's still working on yeah even now new stuff like a, i was watching Dedeco's reaction yeah who knows the de la riva stuff inside and out yeah. and he's been doing bjj for out of 35 years and yeah. i apologize if i got that number wrong but since he was 12 years old yeah it's not like he's he's uh unfamiliar with what this stuff is what it is or and he's watching De La Riva show something. Yeah. And he's like, my God, the guy's still like unlocking yeah. things and adding to the game. So yeah. it's it's amazing. So you just made me think of that. Sorry. Well, there was I saw um something with uh, was it Jocko Willink, and he was saying something about, you know, you you teach these people these techniques and and then you say, Okay, now now go fight. And, yeah. and the guy's like, oh, I was trying to do that technique, he wouldn't let me. I said, Well, yeah, it's a fight, you know. So so you know, you, you, <laughs> I know I, I my students do that all the time. You just, I just, you just show that to me. It doesn't work. I said no. Yeah. I know what you're gonna do. <laughs> I'm not gonna let you do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I always like to me the funniest thing is when I'm uh, uh, rolling with these guys that you know forever and ever. And uh, one of the guys who's uh, he just got to purple, I think. And uh, I said, oh well, now you're purple belt. Obviously, you won't fall for this again. And of course, he doesn't. It's like, well, well, I've been doing that to him for you know right. five years. And the right. reason why I've been doing it to him for five years is because presumably, you know, he was defending it better, but I was getting better at at doing doing it. Yeah. it. It's, a, it's an arms race. It's right? an arms race, and yeah. and yes, it, and he was just at one point he just sort of shrugged. This guy, shrugged. well, yeah, you know, it's like I know if I if it goes there, that's going to happen because it's going to happen. So the only way to not have that happen is to not go there. Stop it and the stop it stop before, it before you go there. But you know, if I force you, if I can force you to choose between A or B, and you have to choose one of them, then right. then, I, then I'm going to succeed, right? Because and 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 you're not even you're not even angry anymore. Well, know? so my a lot of I spawn a lot of frustration intentionally yeah. in my classes sometimes with students, and I stole uh, something from. Carlson Gracie that I heard many years ago, somebody asked him in the middle of a seminar or something he was doing, how do you defend, how do you get out of the triangle? Yeah. Tap. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I do that all the time to my students yeah. and they get mad. And it's, why would I show you yeah. how to get out of something before you've even experienced it? Yeah. Because the real problem is you have to be able to sense when it's about to happen. Yeah. And you have to build up that kinesthetic awareness. And how do you do that? By getting caught in it 10,000 times. times. Yeah. And then you learn that, oh, that's what's coming. And you learn to yeah. stop it. And then, then you start to learn how to get out of it because there's always somebody better that yeah. is going to get you in it. Yeah. So you, that's yeah. when you get the eject handle is after you know that it's coming. Well, I think what's really funny is how many for a higher belt, if someone catches you or you catch some higher belt or you get some in a rear naked choke, mm -hmm. people are pissed off that they got caught. They're not angry at you. They're angry at themselves yeah. because they feel like, how could I get my, how could I get caught in that? I mean, come on. Right. And, you know, <laughs> and it's like certain, so certain things 
you you get annoyed because you're like i shouldn't get caught in that no matter yeah. who's do you know unless that person unless it's some visiting person for a seminar okay you know oh uh, we had gordon ryan in and he you know okay I, I, but but you get someone and they get and and even a lower belt starts getting to this point where like i'm not supposed to get caught in that but but that's the thing is do you get by rolling with different people is it may be the same move it may be the same end result but the entry was different the setup yeah. was different there was a distraction that you haven't seen yeah. before and and that's what my my point to um to highlight a lot with I, when I tell people this is you have to be aware of the the vulnerability that you yeah. have in that moment and and tapping and I'm not the best example of this because I, I hate tapping as yeah, well, yeah. but um, it's not the end of the world. It's yeah. I just learned something today and I just learned something that I had a vulnerability or I had an opening that I didn't know I had and you just showed it to me. So thank you. Yeah. You but know that it's, but I think the interesting, the more interesting phenomenon in all of this is everybody has the person who's like their kryptonite. Yep. And it's, it's, and it's not like an obvious thing. It's not like, you know, you go in there and this guy like, you know, yeah. he's just going to, and there's some people who like, however they are, yep. it's like, suddenly you've, you've like, you, you can't fight. That person is almost impossible to fight. Yeah. I used to roll with uh, my friend Jair Morselli. He's a black belt under the deco and he just for a year. And I would intentionally want to roll with him yeah. all the time. Cause he would just, he, he was always dismembering my guard and it yeah. took me a long time to figure out what he was doing. And I was, ah, yeah. but it, it is, it's frustrating, but you can learn so much from that yeah. as well. If, if you can get yourself to roll with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause I, 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 I felt myself over the course of the week and I would, you know, and, and I was always caught between there's the, again, the altruistic aspect, which is, you know, one should roll with lower belts to help them with their game and let them do stuff. And then there's pursuing your game by rolling with all these higher belts. And sometimes mm -hmm. I sort of split it during the week, but then sometimes it's really like, oh, I'm tired. I like, I don't want to go get smashed. You know, the first day back, New Year's, got back on the mat, they had open mat. Okay, come in. I was like, awesome. I think I rolled three black belts and two brown belts the first day back, you know, new year, you know, yeah. and I was like, okay, I'm good for the year. You know, I, I <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and I don't, and I don't even count whatever the lower belts that I might've rolled with that day. I don't even remember, but all I remember is, ah, oh, shoot. I went in like the first yeah. person I rolled with of the year was a really tough, you know, younger guy. He, he got his black, like another, like a month later or something like that. Month and a half. You know, and he said, "Oh, I, I feel very good about myself because I went and 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 I didn't do so badly, but yeah. and I don't remember, you know, uh, it probably stalemated most people, and, and but I'm always feeling badly, even yeah. after I roll with some guy. Oh, so and so just, you know, they just won the gold at you know this thing, and they come back, and you roll with them, and you're like, man, that was just a stalemate. We didn't, and you're going like, ah, oh, he just killed me. They're like, well, but he didn't, you, you didn't tap again. You didn't tap, right?" Now, yeah. uh, you know, I'm a counter, I'm a counter attacker. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sandbagging until you make a mistake. Right. Um, well, that's part of the game. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm also, you I, mean, know, I would argue 
90% of the game is is waiting for the other person to make a mistake and capitalizing on it. Well, but that's a style, right? Or yeah. forcing the, yeah. the mistake, right? Well, it's, it's it's when you get the aggressive person, the person who's really good and aggressive and young, mm-hmm. and they're just, and okay. But, but so then I'm trying to overcome my desire not to tap and say, I don't want to roll with those higher belts because my chance of <laughs> attack goes up. <laughs> And, and, yeah. yeah, with a lower belt, I could pretend like I was letting them, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, good way. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then there's the, the lower belt who feel like they'll actually be thinking, oh, man, thanks for letting me work. And you're thinking, like, shit, I don't know. <laughs> and, and then you say, oh, no, I wasn't doing that. And they're like, oh, no, thank you. And so then you're like, well, I'm shield. My ego is shielded. Yeah. I, I appear like such a nut. And they're thinking, oh, I don't man, suck. I really don't. Don't suck. And, and they're thinking, oh, man, that nice, that higher belt was so nice. He, he let me work. He could have crushed me at any time. I was like, no, no, he couldn't. No, he was, he was. Yeah. <laughs> Martial arts being uh, legible and lexable, which is to say that you can see it and you can write about it. And I think yeah. it's interesting in jujitsu and you see it in all of these accounts. of uh, We see it in the movies all the time, right? Which is, can you be incredibly self-conscious of your techniques, where you are, describe them to somebody else who has to have a certain amount of knowledge and say, okay, so I'm in this position and what I'm trying to do is get to this other position. And I know that there's this mental, and we talked about this in the earlier part of the interview, the transitions, mm-hmm. right? Can I get to this nice safe place? Okay. I got this position. Can I go from this to this right. other position so <clears throat> that I can do the attack? But I'm afraid to because when I do that, I lose. I have to give up. Some I lose control. the position that I had. Yeah. Yeah, I lose position and maybe give him a chance, and I have no confidence in that other position. But I'm never going to learn that confidence or that exactly. other position. You got to let go, right? Until I let go and right. do that. And so that's. But uh, to be mentally in a place, uh, I had a, a exchange, an email, a, a Facebook exchange with a friend of mine from college who's a also doing jujitsu. And it was a joke about something, but I said to him in response, and he was saying, you know, an entering heel hook from 50-50. And I said, oh, so Lachlan Giles instead of Donaher. And he said, well, yeah, he says, I have both, but I prefer, you know, and it's this yeah. very, this connoisseurship, this, this, we can have that conversation that shows up in the Kung Fu movies. Like, I see you're doing that technique. So you're obviously right. taught by this guy. And that's back to your lineage question. Um, and we're always trying to develop more knowledge and more capability in ourselves. And it's really hard. And then it's even harder to teach someone else. Well, it's funny because <clears throat> when you talk about having that conversation and that they did that in the Kung Fu movies, for example, one of the agendas I've had with when I started this YouTube channel five years ago now was we specifically were only putting out applications and the work that yeah. we've been doing to try to reverse engineer these moves out of the forms and yeah. from Mantis Boxing. And one of the agendas I've had is if I do nothing else in my life, hmm. I want to at least change the conversation in Chinese martial arts, Chinese boxing Hmm. to a conversation. Like if two people get together from Chinese boxing 
that they have a conversation like you're having with your friend in BJJ about, well, which, what way do you like to do a neck clinch? What, which way do you like to apply a skipping knee or a leg hook takedown instead of who'd you study with? What forms did you know? Uh, Whose teacher did you live with? Or this ridiculous nonsense that is completely non-essential or arbitrary. It's like, who cares? What? uh, Yeah. Let's talk about the art. Let's talk about how you apply it. And because it's been so fractured and uh, disassembled in the last 120 years, that that conversation doesn't take place because a lot of people don't have that level of knowledge on how the boxing works from China. So they can't have that conversation. So it becomes completely um, uh, superficial about all we can talk about is, can you speak the language? Can you write the language? Uh, Who was your teacher? And did, is he Chinese or did you go to China? (laughs) Well, you know, I, so I tell you the funny story on that one, which is, um, you know, I said my, my my wife is a Chinese architectural historian. Yeah. And she spent a lot of time in China. And, you know, I'm a textual historian. I, I don't. And most of the texts that I use, basically everything is available. I don't have to go to China to get it. I can right. I can. I mean, particularly now, there used to be a time when I started, you have to at least go to the bookshops in China or right. Taiwan, because the, you couldn't, nowadays you can just get online and look stuff mm-hmm. up. I mean, I still go and get stuff. And But she said to me in graduate school, and I had no sense of this because I'm not sensitive to those sorts of things, uh, which is that there is a group of people for whom you have to have spent time in China to be valid as a Chinese researcher. Now, I mean, we're talking, you know, martial arts, right? You know, so people, I want to go back to Shaolin and study there. Or, yeah. Um, uh, I guess you have to go to Dengfeng, which is where the schools are actually. But but this notion that if you don't didn't go there, if you're not there, and and then what you're doing is not how can how can you be valid? And yeah. I was bothered by that. Of course, when I was in graduate school, you're very vulnerable, so you feel very bothered. You know, now of course I'm not, but also I've been there enough. But there was a certain point where it was like, for the good of your career, you have to go spend time there. Yeah. I almost did last year when, I mean, the research that I did for the conference in LA yeah. was, was not really what I was researching. It was a byproduct of the, the lineage tracing and the history yeah. I've been trying to do with Mantis. And I spun it off for, yeah. for something for the conference. But in the research I was doing last year, I, um, I said to Holly, yeah. I, said, I think I need to go to Yantai. And just if nothing else, just to have boots on the ground and, and say that I've been there or look around or see if I could pick anything, see, maybe I could wander into a museum or a shop and find something that I can't find on the internet or can't find on a, in the library. Yeah. And, and, you know, and you have to say, is that, so, so everybody's grasping for some measure. And this is when, you know, you're, you're in a humanities function, not a, a scientific function, which is how do we, you know, we never make a hundred percent argument in right. human activity. So, you know, it's like this question, would Bruce Lee have beaten this guy in a fight, you know, and then you're getting, it's like, how would you determine that? Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's all, 
if you use all this study and you become self-aware, which I think is the, the thing that we all would like to be, well, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm not saying, I would like to be, you would like to be, I'm not sure other people are trying to be self-aware, then you find out that the practice leads you to greater self-awareness. Yeah. And why do I think what I think is what I think <clears throat> true? Is it an arbitrary distinction is an arbitrary statement you know my comparison is if i say to you what's your favorite color and you say blue and i say you're wrong exactly yes well this happens in chinese boxing all the time yeah but if i say to you what what color is that car over there right and it's a red car and you say blue you're wrong you know it's a sort of if you take this position you know if you get into you know i was i was having this getting past a lot at this one point and one of the I think it was a brown, he's a black belt now, but he's, he said to me, why are you letting me get grips on both of your knees? And I said, well, I was trying to figure out, because I was told, you know, told, don't do that. You know, what he says, you, you can never let, one is bad, but you can't, if we, he's got your pants on both knees, he's going to pass you. Yeah. Um, and I said, I was trying to figure out if there was a way for that not to be true. And he said, and he said, you arrogant bastard. Good luck with that. And he was joking, but he's like, you know, what, you know, what an arrogant thing. Like, like they, they say you don't do this. Yeah. And I was sitting there for a while, like, can I somehow, like, is there some response yeah. where, you know, it's that thing of, I know that if he has those grips, he's going to try to pass like this. Right. Knowing that, is there something I can do that will take that, that will get that gap? Because he's confident. He knows I'm going to do this. I'm going to pass. And if I can have a response that he has not thought of, you and get him, yeah. that'll be awesome because then I will totally, like, but it doesn't exist. Well, so now. Because I've seen that work in an opposite with uh, Hanan Borges, uh, BJJ black belt. And uh, yeah. On our team, he, he was competing. This was probably six years ago, the yeah. IBJJF in Boston, the summer yeah. open, and uh, he let the guy. He, uh, he had his lapel, and he let the guy run yeah. his back, get his hooks in. Yeah. The guy thought he was in this awesome position. He loop yeah. choked him over his shoulder from the turret yeah. on the back mount. Yeah, and tapped him out. I was like, what? What just happened? Yeah. yeah. Like, I had to watch that video playback 500 times to like, yeah. oh my God. And yeah. so I've seen it work where he just let him get to that really, the guy was so confident that, yeah. that he had that amazing position, but he yeah. went to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Didn't, that, that's not what happened for me. I, I had to basically. <laughs> well, I'm just giving you aspirations yeah, yeah. to look forward well, to. No, so then I, so then I realized, okay, I just can't let that happen. So then I start, and then you get a lower belt who's really frustrated because they're saying like, I'm going to pass and you won't let them get that, that, that grip. Yeah. And so then they're like, what am I supposed to do now that you're not letting me get the grip that I need to try to do the technique I just learned? But I don't <laughs> want you to do that technique. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't want to take too much more of your yeah. time. I, you said something a, a little while ago about, um, people studying different style, like nobody yeah. that was noteworthy yeah. uh, did one thing. Yeah. And uh, 
I just want to throw these names out there. It's just yeah. uh, make me feel better, I guess, to get it off my chest. <laughs> um, so in the in Yantai, in the yeah. late Qing dynasty, uh, probably after the boxer uprisings, yeah. from what I can tell, these are some guys that all branched out from this one line of if there was a mantis boxing before this, which is questionable. Yeah. They they all went and opened or taught somebody else under yeah. a different brand. Mm -hmm. One was Seven Star, one was Taiji Mantis, another was yeah. Meikwa Taiji Mantis. Because we uh we need to be different than that guy. And yeah. um, but what was interesting is uh all of them. So Jiang Hua Long studied Lo Han Chuan and Huo, Huo, is that monkey? Ho. Ho, Ho H Chuan. Yeah. yeah, Ho Chuan. Uh, Song Zide, Zidi, Z-I-D-E. Zide. Zide, Song Zide. Uh, Lo Han Chuan and Ho Chuan as well. Hao Lian Ru studied Lo Han Chuan, which I know Lo Han Chuan is just, who knows what it's like. Well, it's the, the, the Lohan is this Buddhist figure. So. Right. I mean, that was the uh, the reverse accreditation. It's really just what could be family art, could be the yeah. local. Um, Wang Rongshen studied Changchun, which is, again, this yeah. just whatever. Uh, Ditong and then whatever his uh, Biaoshi teacher taught him, yeah. if anything. But it... It's interesting because they are all come from these other backgrounds. Yeah. The this mix of other styles, other arts. Yeah. And their results of their forms that we that somehow people kept immaculately intact for the last 120 years, relatively unchanged, have remnants of uh, plum blossom. Yeah. Um, in them, so it just goes back to what you're saying is these. These guys all did different stuff. None of it yeah. was, we did this and only this, and yeah. uh, you're committing the worst sin if you go study uh, boxing at all when I'm trying to teach you yeah. jujitsu. Well, and that's, and, and that's where the, the MMA ethos, I think, is very nice in that it's about effectiveness. Yes. And trying not to, but, but it's interesting because anyone who's trying to run a school as you do actually at some point you have to have some kind of curriculum and a promotion system and you know because people want to feel that progress and you know we need that uh uh you know we we want to feel like we're not just nowhere i also found for this and i learned this lesson the hard way just because you've reached this level of enlightenment mm where you realize that it's all the same stuff yeah. that the names of things don't matter. The, the styles don't matter. Yeah. Uh, that that's found in Greco Roman wrestling. And it's found in, in Mongolian wrestling, the same yeah. exact move developed on opposite sides of Asia. Yeah. Different time period. But just because we may know that doesn't mean that a beginner needs to hear it or can even comprehend things on that level. And if somebody comes through your door because they have this idea that they want to learn um, judo, yeah, I, they saw judo and judo is the best thing ever. 
and they come in and you say, well, I'm going to show you Shuaijiao. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. It, it doesn't work. Yeah. Labels are extremely important for us. Yeah. Early on. Well, I mean, I, I teach undergraduate classes and what I expect in an undergraduate class at an intro level is different because you realize there's only so much you can teach someone mm. at any given time and you have to teach, you can't destroy all of their concepts at once. You know? I brought them to my school. Let me crush your, your entire yeah. world. Yeah. And now, and then expect you to come back and say, okay, now right. you show me everything. You know, so you have to kind of, uh, as I, when I was learning Chinese back in the eighties and they were, they, you know, we'd sort of do first year Chinese and they said, okay, here are all these rules. You know, oh, great. I did my first year. And they come back in second year and say, okay, all those things we told you rules are not rules. Here's this stuff. And then you get, you go through your second year and then they come back and they're like, okay, th those are, th those are not rules either. And they, well, wait a minute, well, okay. You know, so you, I have one of my students that is constantly infuriated that I keep, he's like, you keep changing the rules on me. Yeah. Like, no, you needed to hear that then. You that don't time. Need to hear that now. And that's, and that's the skill of teaching. And it's very hard, you know, cause we're not Yoda, you know, we, we'd like to be, and we'd like to find our own Yoda. Who's going to, yeah tell us the right thing we need to advance who we can totally trust you know that's why we all i think most of us are so frustrated with luke right because it's like you got yoda yeah it says do this don't do that and you're like no you're like why you're an idiot i mean it's yoda right and of course he's right of course he's right and of course the problem for yoda that makes him tragic right he's seen the future he knows you're not going to listen to him right <laughs> he's doing it anyway <laughs> yeah one of my favorite uh quotes about teaching that I, I saw years ago and I can't even remember uh, who wrote it or where I saw it was a teacher takes you where you need to be, not where you want to be. Yeah. But you had to go kind of, you got to make them think it's where they want to be. Yeah, exactly. That's, or, the, that's the trick. <laughs> yeah. Or, or I, I try to take the position that I, if you come and ask me a question, I should answer your question and not just say to you, well, you're asking the wrong question. Because first I have to answer your questions before right. you're going to be open to me saying, you know, now that I've answered that, you might consider this. Whereas if I say to you, no, this, then you're gonna say, well, screw you, you didn't answer my question. And <laughs> But that's very hard to do because a lot of the things yeah. that I study are uh, go against But I do want to thank you for your time and uh, taking time out of your day, especially these days, um, answering some of these questions. And um, yeah, no, it was, it was great, and and you know, uh, I really enjoyed when I got to you know train with you up in uh, Boston. It it made that trip a lot more fun. Oh, you're always welcome. I know it was a little out of the way from where you were staying, but yeah, I, well, I'm still annoyed that I didn't get there early enough to 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 do the the mantis part of it. Uh, but it was still a lot of fun. I mean, I, well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you today, and I, I look forward to seeing this up on on the internet. And